Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Nick Gosling, and today we're joined by Aaron Jin. Aaron was named by Wired Magazine as one of the 20 tech insiders defining the 2016 campaign, and this year was named by Forbes in the 30 Under 30 for Law and Policy. He's been involved with companies such as Simply, StumbleUpon, and Everlane, and is also the co-founder of the Lincoln Network. Uh, and he is also an advisory board member to us here at LCI. Aaron will be talking to us today about what's it like to be a libertarian in Silicon Valley, uh, some of the news stories that we've seen in the past year or two that are relevant to uh, conservatives and libertarians in Silicon Valley, and censorship and the debates that are sort of going on there. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit about what the Lincoln Network is doing and some of the alternatives uh, that are that are happening in in the tech sector uh, as a result of these trends, and then we're also going to talk a little bit about some theology and how AI and futurism and all these sorts of things might play into our into our Christian Christianity and Christian thinking. Aaron, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you know, it, in the last couple of years, I mean, it seems, and I guess this has probably been a trend for a while, and maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the history there, but. You know, we we've seen a lot of a lot of spotlight on what's going on in Silicon Valley as it relates to censorship and people who really don't fall into kind of the progressive leftist paradigm uh, are ostracized. Uh, we see the the politicization of you know major firms like like Facebook and Zuckerberg and others uh, who who are out there pushing for a a leftist type agenda. So. I mean, what, what, what's it like up there being a libertarian or, or a, a traditional type conservative uh, in, in the Bay Area? To, to bring in some more recent news, people say Harvey Weinstein's like the biggest uh, fall from grace ever. And I would actually say Silicon Valley has had a uh, biggest fall ever in the terms of, of brand, equity, and value. Uh, it seems like this whole past year has been a sort of let's like hate on Silicon Valley from both the left and the right. And the only people remaining in the middle who are sort of saying, hey, we should probably like, you know, slow our roll here are generally like libertarians uh, who, who's, who sort of see the innovation and the, and the great things that come out of Silicon Valley. And of course that there are, there are, there are definitely like, you know, concerns that people have raised and, and as the saying goes, people don't know your monopoly until you behave badly. So, so I think that there there has been this more recent push to to highlight some of the negative aspects of Silicon Valley from uh, the more leftist side of the spectrum, which would be like wealth inequality, to the more right side of the spectrum, which would be like freedom of speech issues and and censorship. And and it's not surprising as as most people who watch, you know, all of us here watch. News probably on a regular basis, consume a lot of news. A lot of stuff that has been discussed regarding Silicon Valley is very misinformed, and people don't really know how most of this technology works. So, so it, uh, it's not like it's far 
out of left field that, that DC or some other state capital would want to regulate Silicon Valley. Uh, and, and also in the sense that they don't really understand what the technology does or like actually how this stuff works. Um, since they, they tend to regulate anything they like to, anything they like to touch. Uh, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's been, it's been especially concerning because, because it, it, I think a lot of it is self-inflicted. It, it, Silicon Valley generally has had this, you know, to, to pull Google's, uh, motto, you know, do no evil and has been generally broadly received pretty well in the sense of accepting innovation and America generally has been more or less in favor of a lot of things that have come out of Silicon Valley and they viewed it very favorably. Um, but in the last year, it's been it's been especially difficult from sexual harassment scandals to concerns about whether or not people who work in the share economy should be unionized to like more Luddite things like AI and Thomas vehicles are going to destroy the entire world. So so it's been especially a dark year so far. But Silicon Valley has 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 a lot to to blab its own blame on its own shoulders from how it's engaged in these public issues to how it's played its political hand to how it talks about people. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's been especially uh, challenging because it's, it's not only educating people who are, don't work in technology, because even out in the, in the Bay Area, the percentage of people who actually work in technology companies ranges between, you know, depending on what county you're in, like 15 to 30%. So it's still even not the majority of people who actually live in specific counties out in the Bay Area. So not only, not only is it educating those certain people who are STEM and who work in technology about how to actually talk about issues publicly, how to engage in politics, because we're not very good at that. Uh, and then it's also educating the public that like Google isn't scary. Like Google doesn't really care about your rando video about the Second Amendment that you think that they censored. Like, you know, Google doesn't care about often these search these search results or Facebook or et cetera, because um, I think it's also an elevated view of of importance about what our particular policy position we're advocating for, rather than like a realization that Facebook is worth I think it's five hundred billion dollars. Do you really think that they care about you know your little liberty whatever website that that you think that they censored? Probably not, right? It's it's more it's a more complex issue about I think institutional discrimination within these tech companies rather than a specific technology that's like, you know, today, like it's not like someone at Facebook's like today we're going to like, you know, push down Drudge Report. We're going to push down, uh, you know, Red State or Fox News or Wall Street Journal. Like there isn't, that button doesn't exist. Uh, it, it's, it's a more like subtle thing rather than like a more overt thing. So one of the things that you had mentioned there was that there's, there's criticism from the, the left also. I mean, most at least this is my perception, I think most of Americans' perception, so correct me if, if I'm wrong, but most Silicon Valley executives tend, tend to be on the left side of the spectrum. So when we're talking about issues like uh, unionizing, you know, uh, I mean, the, and that would really apply to things like, like Uber and, and Lyft, as you mentioned, the share economy, um, should they be treated as W-2 employees or 1099 contractors? Should they unionize? Uh, so, I mean, you, we have these executives who, for, for the most part, are, are on the left side of the spectrum, but the, the business interests of their, of their company uh, would, would clash with these kind of traditionally leftist ideas. So how is, how is uh, the, the, the tech sector up there dealing with that sort of uh, uh, tension? Yeah, I would say that it's broadly correct that uh, the closest thing that we've, that we've seen with polling has been some work that uh, Greg Ferenstein has done with Stanford. Greg has been a pretty prolific tech journalist out here. And more or less, like the, the, the percentage of people who would be aligned with like the liberty message um, 
or let, let me take a step back. It'd be people who actually identify as conservative libertarian, probably be around 30%. People who identify the liberty message, which could include classical liberals, right? People who are like old school Democrats. Uh, you could probably get to maybe like high 30s to maybe low 40s. Um, but the but the, the, the issue is that a large number of progressives are in these positions of influence, which you know, nationwide progress, you know, progressives are generally around 20%. Out here, you're talking about like maybe almost 30 to 40%. And and as you know, progressives are quite loud, and and they like to tell us what they believe, and also force force what they believe upon us. Right? Uh, it's part of their nature. So so out of that, you have like sort of an outsize um, voice in that category. But most people who work in technology are not political; they're apolitical. If anything, they're some form of like a European technocrat, maybe. Like they they they're more interested in like how science and data is being used in the public sphere rather than like picking sides. And and you can look at that uh, people who actually work in the in the federal or state government, uh, people who generally are on the more engineering technical side, even if they let's say are identified with a particular political category, tend to be the ones that are saying like, well, the data doesn't support that, this thing just doesn't work right, um, et cetera, et cetera. You can go talk to people like at USDS. Uh, you know, most of them would would claim to be underneath you know USDS is United States Digital Service. Most of them would claim to be Democrats in many ways because they came underneath Obama. And that's when they created this little sub office. But if you talk to them about like actually how this stuff works out tangibly in like policy and and in execution, they'd be very much on the technocratic side of being like the federal government doesn't work. Like technology here is really bad and like we waste a lot of money and like et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that goes back to like also what you said regarding but their companies are extremely capitalistic, right? Uh, there there's a sort of a, a an infamous quote by a uh, uh, a venture capitalist out here who works at one of the top A firms, who said that he is a uh, a a socialist capitalist, whatever the hell that means, right? Like like it's one of those things that people say. You're just like, yeah, you probably don't really fully know what you're talking about. Uh, so so it, it there is this like if you look at uh, sort of the millennial polling as well, like millennials are very uh, against the welfare state, for example, right? Uh, but as in like uh, welfare is in helping people sort of uh, with like food stamps to uh, low income housing, things like that. But then if you go to like their opinions on Medicare and Medicaid, they also tend to have a very leftist view on that and like healthcare. So, so I think that there's like this, this tension within the, um, you know, in this neo, I don't think it's postmodern, but it's more of like a neo-modernist because Postmodern assumes like there is no facts, but but I would say Silicon Valley, the mentality of people in technology is very obsessed with like data, but it's more of this like this neo-modernist. I don't know if that makes any sense, but uh, this ability to like say that I can believe in two contradictory things at once and somehow be still consistent. So so I think a lot of it it would be around that like they feel that that they can afford these things that like the reason why we have you know, urban growth boundary limits, or we he- heavily regulate housing here that's causing poverty, or the reason why we support higher taxation or regulation is the fact of like, well, I am okay and well off already, and I can afford this sort of hit. So I think it's like a lack of a little bit of self-awareness. Uh, and then I think the the other one I think is virtue signaling. I think a lot of that goes on out here that that they they sort of have a dualistic mindset that I, I have to show that like I'm a good person politically, even though like if I don't actually run my company that way, right? I have to show the world, I have to show the mob that I am of a particular persuasion, even if internally I'm like still 
you know, running my company like a, 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 a the way a capitalist should. Um, and, and I think a lot of, of leftists have fallen for that over the last eight years underneath Obama, not realizing that I think more people on the center right understand this issue that companies are interested in making money and they will tell you anything to make money, right? That's just like, that is the fiduciary duty of a company. So I think more people on the center right have said, uh, and, you know, including libertarians, understand that a company's primary interest is to make money. Therefore, all this other virtue signaling stuff is total BS. It's just totally nonsensical, right? Like, why are you doing this is sort of our question. But out here, I think that because of the, the pressure bubble of living in the Bay Area, because of this sort of, uh, I think, the uh, the desire to virtue signal and show that, like, you know, you're a good person, um, not much probably thoughtfulness regarding a lot of these issues. So they're like, they're holding sort of, you know, dualistic positions um, leads to these these outward showings of like leftist policy supports that have nothing to do with the company. Um, and 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 I think underneath the Trump administration, uh, one of the I'd say benefits of the Trump administration has been the fact that like a lot of these sort of underlining left currents and culture and institutions and society have sort of shown themselves right because they're, they're so like emotionally distraught that they like expose that the emperor has no clothes. And and I think the technology community fell for that, just as the NFL has fallen for it, just as like acad- the academy is falling for it, just as like you know uh, the media is falling for it. Um, and and I think that's really unfortunate because now technology is becoming associated with like political affinities rather than being viewed as just a good innovation, right? Like just because like the sharing economy now is viewed as like bad. Because like Uber was one of the largest successes of it, and Uber is like much more of like a libertarian company, um, and uh, in, this, in the sense of like of the philosophy of Travis. If you hear him talk back previously before he became a billionaire, he he was he was pretty much on the like liberty side of the spectrum, um, and and now like the sharing economy is viewed as bad, and like creating like people who are like dependent and like can't you know like. Isolating people in the sense of that they they have no opportunity, um, and 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 now you're seeing also like on the the social media side that that there are like center right social networks, center right blogging platforms, and there's nothing different about the technology, right? It's just like it's more of more of like should 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 people be able to organize themselves around technology now? Not only in the sense of like algorithms within Facebook, but now people are going to be picking technologies as like this is like the leftist version of Twitter. Which is a sad state of of business innovation, and and things aren't going to be accepted for what they actually objectively do. They're going to be accepted for like who actually made it and like what's their political persuasion. Yeah, I mean when you're when you're talking about alternate platforms and things of that sort, I think one that's kind of been uh, really notable in the news cycles over the last year or so has been Gab, right? Which is supposed to be like this alternate Twitter um, for for conservative libertarian types. Um, but I mean, it, it, the, the, I think there's several problems with that. I mean, it, including what you mentioned. I mean, if you're going to if you're going to go out into social media with the intent of influencing people, you have to go where the people are. And you know, if, if the people are on Twitter or Facebook or YouTube or wherever, that's that's where you need to go. If you're if you're going to be a libertarian or a conservative or whatever, and and you're going to try to influence uh, leftists to not be a leftist. Then you need to go where where the people are. I, I think creating these little alternate platforms. Everyone's trying to do their own little kingdom building thing, and and really what that ends up doing is building walls and isolating us from being able to influence broader 
broader culture and society. Do you, would, would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. Although I, as a as a natural Girardian and contrarian, there is a, a a libertarian thinker. His name's Michael. He's like a big North Korean expert, Michael Malthus. Yeah, he actually says this is like one of the best things that's ever happened. That like people will become more tribal and will have their own little groups of people because then no one can impose like can impose their rules upon him. He thinks political discourse is a, is the is is the imposition of someone's will upon yourself, which I, I mean, I appreciate the thought. I don't, I don't agree, but like, it's an interesting like exercise, thought exercise. A lot of the desires that go into this, I think, are like well intentioned, and like the, there's this movement. I, if you if you pull out the like political tribalism, there is a, a natural response to Silicon Valley that I think is really justified in the sense that 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 Americans. Most Americans are quite liberal when it comes to free speech issues, and they don't think ideas harm people. They they want people to express themselves in whatever a contrarian idea is. And Silicon Valley has bought into, I think, a lot of the more progressive ideas regarding that ideas can ideas are violence. So so, I and I was talking to uh, I help a lot of C threes with with understanding Silicon Valley and how to use these platforms. And I connected to the people and companies who are actually aligned with us. And there's a large number of them. And, and, I, and I can't say it's a majority because I don't have any data to support that. But like the people who are part of our network, uh, they, they work at these companies. And they, or they're an engineer at Facebook. They're an engineer at Google. And, and they see the institutional bias. And they, like they're not going to, you know, they're not going to defend that, and I'm not going to defend Google or Facebook. Like they have billions of dollars, they can do that themselves. But I'm more interested in the truth of the matter without being tribal. And and the 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 reality is that a lot of this stuff is just like sort of unforced errors. That that a lot of this concern regarding censorship is that the someone at the Facebook, you know, because you get again, remember that most of these people are are left leaning, so they often haven't ever heard these arguments, or right? they, they've they've never heard of. The, the the defense of Second Amendment and like they think all guns are violence, right? Or they've never they never had the the argument about taxation or about about the contribution of the welfare state to to uh, racial inequality, right? So they never heard these things, yeah, uh, because they've been isolated and live in a bubble. Like they went from from going to an Ivy League school to going to work in Silicon Valley, right? You're surrounded entirely by leftists the whole time. So so a, a lot of this this stuff is is around that, like the people who. When it, when the when the rubber meets the road, when the human is like looking at some form of 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 complaint, because all this stuff happens through complaints. Like people, uh, I say all of it. It's like om- almost all of it happens through uh, mobs of like left leaning Puritans who are who are were ho- like you know trolling these networks, right? Trolling these channels on YouTube or trolling trolling Facebook pages, and. And they basically abuse the abuse button. Like they, 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 they intentionally go out and like target these channels to raise red flags because all of the the all of the forms of quote unquote censorship that happens on these platforms, because some form of censorship has to exist on these platforms from defamation to to pornography to all that stuff. So all this stuff is like automatic triggers, right? So a certain number of responses leads the algorithm to basically delist it or remove it because because you, you can't monitor you know thousands and thousands of hours of of you know let's say for example youtube content being uploaded you know every every hour like you, no human could possibly uh edit that let alone humans aren't reliable to, to edit that properly so so a lot of this stuff is just programmed into the community providing feedback and also some like 
you know, machine learning applied to like the images that are showing up onto the videos to to see if it violates copyright, to see if it's pornography, to see, and it goes through all these different channels of checks, right? And 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 I could say that where there's legitimate argument it comes to center right channels is that there isn't an institutional bias in the sense that people who finally, when the rubber meets the road and a human touches your content, that there is an institutional bias there, that there is that like the fact that Trump is mainstream, right? Despite how many left people leftist people will, will say like we're normalizing Trump. He is the president of the United States. He is normalized. The office has normalized him, right? Like so so there is an effort I think within the left to who work at these companies to not understand like what is mainstream because they're not exposed to it. They don't have friends that are possibly voted for Trump. They don't have friends who are libertarians. They don't have they don't have any of that. They're not exposed to that content. So when they see it they're like, "Well, yeah, that sounds like hate speech to me." Not realizing that half of the country may actually believe in that position, like whatever the Confederate statue thing was, right? Something like 68% of of Americans said that we shouldn't remove the statue. But to Silicon Valley here, they would think that all those statues are racist because they're, they're not exposed to that idea that like some people actually may differ with you and you need to have some empathy uh, with that position. One of the things that you mentioned is we're talking about censorship. Um, so, I mean, yeah, private companies have to have the ability and, and, and have the right, and they certainly have to have the ability to, to censor certain content. So, I mean, you'll often see people kind of from, from our side of the spectrum who will say like, oh, this is violating my First Amendment rights uh, if I'm being you know, censored by Google or Facebook or whatever. But in the First Amendment applies to the government, right? It doesn't apply to a private company. So I think it's kind of ironic that, that yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, especially if for those who are constitutional minarchists, uh, they're kind of engaging in creative interpretation of the Bill of Rights there. If you take the First Amendment, which was written to apply to the government, and say it now applies to Google or Facebook or Apple or, or Twitter. Um, so that's just that's just an observation I, I wanted to point out. Or even if you consider the fact of what the the Christian Baker case, the, these platforms like so you're forcing me to like you're for, as a company you're saying I have to force to provide the service to somebody, right? As in as in what we're trying to. So on one side the center right is supporting the fact of of the Christian Baker and artists, right? That that whole Supreme Court case that's going to happen. And on the other side they're like, no, you have to force service with me on my on my platform, right? You have to like. You have to like allow my voice to be heard, and in in some respects, like that's why I think that Silicon Valley is like walking down a dangerous road because it's it's sort of politically ignorant in this way. Is that the center right is actually mostly aligned regarding what the values of the company are? Like we want innovation, we we don't want regulation. We're like generally opposed to Title II net neutrality stuff. Like we we want companies to thrive. We want entrepreneurship. Like we want immigrants to come here and start amazing companies. And this is just like. As in, you know, to to use Paul's verbiage of thorn in the flesh really creatively, like it's just this thorn in the flesh thing of like, why do you have to be so like Puritan leftist, right? Like, like it's very easy to win over the center right. Just like don't don't like censor the speech, right? Just like allow it to like go, and then everyone in the center right would be fine, right? They'd just be like, yeah, like Silicon Valley can do whatever it wants, right? But but the fact that like it does this and it, and it's in it's like virtue signaling. And it bought it bought into a worldview regarding speech, uh, and the James Damore thing, and you just like run through the gambit. You're like, these are all like unforced errors that are not necessary. That are that that would at least win over one side of the spectrum that would support it. But now both sides of the spectrum are like, why would I help you? Like on the center right, you're like, yeah, I believe you censor my speech, and your entire company is like crazy leftist, and you 95 percent of your money from your company went to Hillary. And the other side. 
you know, the leftist side, they see wealth inequality. They see that you supported Hillary. They see that you allowed Russia, quote unquote, to, you know, rig our election. And so they see Silicon Valley as the enemy. But one side of the spectrum, though, says, like, just, just you know, stop messing around with, like, free speech stuff and censorship. And then, like, we'll be good. And it's like, it's, it's a very easy equation over there. On the left side, it's not easy because they, in general, don't like, in my opinion, wealth creation. So... So they they they're naturally opposed to to like the, their their fundamental political philosophy is opposed to the the idea of like what Silicon Valley has created. Now I mentioned quite a bit here so far this institutional idea of, of institutional censorship. Uh, some stories that have kind of been uh, the, the most prominent examples of that. I mean, if I'm thinking back, starting a few years ago, there was the uh, Mozilla case with Brendan Eich, who was CEO for like what ten days. Uh, before he was forced out, um, and and for those who don't know, Brendan Eich, uh, I, I believe he's Roman Catholic, but he had given like a thousand dollar donation uh, of his own private money to uh, to the to the marriage protection initiative. This was many many years ago, uh, in in California, and so when he became uh, CEO of Mozilla, which I believe he was actually one of one of the co-founders, but when he became the CEO. Um, I mean, the, the, the left just went nuts, and he was forced to resign, and now he's off doing something totally different. He has a company called Brave, which is a, an alternative browser he's designing. Um, and then more recently, there's, as you mentioned, the James Damore case with Google, and then there's the Barry Lynn thing with the Google putting the pressure on the think tank because they didn't like what Barry Lynn was doing. And then there's Tim Cook coming out and saying, you know, we're going to donate Apple's, Apple uh, profits to the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, so these are all just kind of things that are that are seem to be sort of it, escalating in that institutional um, direction, coming mostly from top management. So can can you talk a little about that? Yeah, the, it, it's it's a. I, I think that a lot of these people who who work at like you know who are CEOs and executives, like they they just have never been around somebody who thinks differently than them. Like they're they're some of the most sheltered, fragile people I've ever met in life, and yet they're worth some of them worth billions of dollars, and yet. You know, it's it's like they've never had a Twitter account, right? They've they've never read what people write to you on Twitter. Uh, like like for example, the the, the James and Moore thing. Like the the CEO of of YouTube said that her child was permanently damaged from from the letter of of or the memo that James and Moore wrote. To me, that implies like you're probably not a good parent. <laughs> like uh, like it, it like have you have you read anything that anyone produces on your platform? Right? It's some of the most vicious content. Some of the people are some of the, like the YouTube commenters are are crazy vicious, right? Um, and I'm not like I'm not endorsing James's position or or the of course like these these commentators, but it's just more of the matter of fact. What is reality? Like what what world do you live in? And and I think a lot of these people they live in in a in a fairy tale world that is not that is that is the bubble of Silicon Valley, and you know they talk to each other and they're part of the elite class. And my background, even though it is pretty extensive in technology, I I came from Texas, like, and most of my family lives in the middle of America. And I travel a lot as part of, you know, doing Lincoln. And we have a ton of engineers all over the nation who are part of Lincoln. And I can guarantee, I can tell you that when you go to places like Austin or Raleigh, even in New York, like, people who work in technology, it is, it is very different. And, like, they, they, they view a lot of this stuff as, like, utter craziness. And, and, and it's, and it's it, the, the funny thing is, like, it's not taking a position on anything, right? It's like, if you want to give to you know the hate group that is the Southern Poverty Law Center. If you want to give uh, to to all these other leftist organizations, and like 
then that's fine. That's your prerogative. But like the reasoning that they give is like, whoa, that's like not rational. Like it's like out of literally out of left field and and massive amounts of like non sequiturs and ad hominems and 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 it's it's just it's just it's just really surprising that like people who are so smart and can build such amazing things and can build such amazing products uh, and can lead to incredible companies to amazing wealth and you know companies go public and and they 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 change the future can have such like short sightedness when it comes to to these issues and 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 that's all that's mostly of the things that we're saying at at Lincoln is like hey like you know check yourself like one of the one of the big phrases in Silicon Valley that has sort of lost luster in, in many years has been check your ego at the door and a lot of this stuff is just ego like 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 check your check all of your your stuff at the door like you know this is this is a startup. This is a company. Like we're here working together on something. Leave all your other crap at at home and like do it in your private time. Like, uh, and and uh, and I think this this cultural obsession to like add another lens to it. I think the left has started this trend, but the right is now jumping on the the far right's jumping on this train of of having you know political and cultural purity inside of your company because just because someone differs with you on a perspective, therefore they need to be fired. Because someone believes in low taxes, therefore they're like they they hate people, and therefore they need to be let go. This whole obsession about people who work with me need to have my same political opinions is very strange, and and it, it's 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 crazy to see the culture has moved so quickly in four or five years, and and I think I think these 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 trends have always been underlying because I believe that a lot of this stuff is like Hegelian, Marxian like strategy regarding the cultural level. So I believe most of it's always been underlining, but 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 it's it's now like the battle I think in America is between classical liberalism and progressivism. I think that's the battle. I I I, I don't buy into this whole like blue and red thing anymore. Uh, I believe it's between people who believe in self determination, uh, critical thinking, free expression, that stuff, versus people who don't. And and this is this is our current cultural moment that's going to define, I think, at least the next four to eight years. Um, and, it, and it is it is a redefinition of of the map. And, and unfortunately, I thought Silicon Valley was going to be protected from a lot of this stuff because it is so data focused and and so iterative focused. But unfortunately, like the 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 surrounding environment around Silicon Valley has infected it with with a with a pernicious virus that can only I think destroy wealth. Uh, and and it, it is not interested in is not interested in innovation because innovation means it requires critical thinking, free expression, contrarianism, countering the narrative. And if you can't do that anymore because you're going to be labeled an ism and a phobia or whatever, then then innovation's dead. Uh, and this isn't just like my my own opinion. Like if you talk to like because our network's mostly secretive or just secret, it's private. Um, it's mostly private, but out of that, we, we talked to a ton of VCs who are also like Democrats who believe this too, who believe that like the Sil- Silicon Valley isn't a place they want to invest anymore. Cause they're like people out here, uh, are put politics over building a company. They, they are obsessed with virtue signaling rather than building a company. And they find people in other markets like Austin and Denver, uh, even like, you know, Austin's liberal, Denver's liberal. But but they find there that the the technology talent there isn't as interested in that. They're interested in building something and like delivering impact to customers. But people people on the valley have been affected, and and a lot of liberal VCs, even some of them who are progressive too, have said like it, it's over. Like if, if this is what Silicon Valley is about, 
then 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 Silicon Valley's dead. And and I don't want to see that. Like I want to. I like you know we're pushing back and being like like this isn't this isn't what uh, Silicon Valley is about. We touched on this a little bit earlier, and and we're kind of moving in that direction again. So sometimes we hear terms like uh, techno libertarian or crypto anarchy, and and all these sort of things where there are innovations that you know whatever the politics of the of the engineers or the developers may be. Uh, are tending in the direction of replacing traditionally state-run kind of prerogatives and and institutions. And I really think we're seeing this with blockchain technology going into the banking sector, but in many other areas as well. Uh, And then there's, of course, I mean, uh, Peter Thiel very famously uh, started the the Seasteading Institute with Petri Friedman, and there's all these sorts of things. So uh, can you talk a little about what is the current state of that and then uh, also discuss uh, your network, the Lincoln Network, and how, how, how you guys are sort of playing into this whole broader uh, paradigm. Yeah, it's really exciting, right? Because because technology at its core is a massive decentralization force, which is why it is, and it gives people the power to make their own decisions. It's like one of the greatest, greatest inventions, you know, ever to come across, uh, like society. It's just, it's just so exciting to see what the internet, what the web, what interconnectivity can do, and and uh, if you look at the natural force and momentum of technology, it Silicon Valley spe- specifically technology, it has been to give people more information. This inter this this inter this intermediates traditional power structures that were created in the 1960s and 1970s, right? Like the, these like these these older bureaucracies that were used to control information and, and like and to give people. Uh, sort of limited access to information and also limited access to actually own self-determination. And the to, the internet is completely reversing that. And and a lot of these intermediaries now are being disrupted and being replaced with programs, being replaced with computers. And the, and this is the natural movement of the innovation. So like the, the 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 future to me is like more and more power in your own hands, into your own phone, into your own computer, into your own house, whatever whatever places like the next interfaces are. And and it's really exciting to 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 see people uh, have the ability of freedom to to make their own decisions and and, and like you know the the a couple, a couple weeks ago whatever that people in Venezuela were gonna start like using blockchain instead of their current current currency right it, it, it's it's somewhat as from like a, I can understand from like a regulatory perspective from government perspective it's like somewhat of the most scariest thing at the same time it's like also showing that the the institutions in which we put so much trust in so much we believe in that we think protect us and create some sense of normalcy in society are also incredibly fragile in many ways uh, and have not been kept up to date and have not are not investing in new ideas. And, and the, the funny thing is, like, if you would talk to anyone in D.C., they would actually all agree with that. They'd be like, yeah, I mean, freaking this agency is ancient. They use old technology and they like they don't support anything new. And it's just now like that that because the Internet is is most heavily consumer focused, it's going directly to people going directly to them and giving them the power and rather than thinking about the way that which we attack problems head on is like going through the rigmarole of congress to to the you know making legislation or whatever agency technology is subverting that right it's going a different direction it's going directly to people and it's creating new organizations and new collaboration between individuals that are totally natural and organic and that, that I think are far superior because because they're cheaper they're actually what people want and and they're way more iterative, and they can keep they can keep up with with the trends of the day. So I want to 
go move into a little bit of a different direction here now, and, and this is something that we, um, we mentioned at the beginning we'd be discussing. So as we consider the direction of technology and all, all these advances, I mean, it, and technology tends to be exponential. I mean, if you just look at the advances we've had in the last 10 years, 20 years, 100 years, I mean, it totally dwarfs um, the, the, the preceding centuries and, and millennia. Um, so as, as this keeps growing and, and exponentially advancing and snowballing and, and we become more and more interconnected, more and more advanced, uh, there's, there's these debates uh, amongst different high-level tech leaders and, and ethicists and philosophers over what are the dangers versus the benefits of this. So, I mean, you know, there's, there's Elon Musk out there talking a lot about this. There's Ray Kurzweil, a very famous futurist. There's Stephen Hawking who's talking about it. Uh, what are your thoughts on the, the, the potential benefits versus what dangers may lurk ahead as it relates to this advancement of technology, and how should we think about that specifically as Christians? Hmm. I think that there has been an overemphasis on the downsides. I think the new Luddites are people who are talking about AI and autonomous vehicles. The previous Luddites were climate change folks. And and the new ones now are they just pick something different because they tend to get bored with stuff. Uh, the most of the talk regarding AI and Thomas vehicles is, is totally overblown, and and it's like grandstanding. Most of it's trying to justify valuations and to get people excited for acquiring companies. And I, I hate to be so like sort of dark regarding it, but the technology is like not there yet. Like it, it means exciting, and like I think it's it is the future. But we're talking about future of like a decade. Right, where even if the most aggressive forecasts, even by car companies, just pick autonomous vehicles for example, car companies which know the most about this issue because they they make cars for a living, it we're still talking about like twenty twenty five, maybe where a lot of cars, a lot of new cars have level three autonomous vehicle technology, maybe like 2020, 2025. but but all of the current advances have been with current technology. Uh, that have been in cars for the last 10 years or so. I mean, radar cruise control, which is the basis of most of this technology, uh, and, I mean, outside of, like, there's there's still some advances in sensors and stuff like that in software, but the core of that's still been in there. It's been in car technology for the last decade. And so, so like, it is going to be the future, and it is coming, but we need to, like, slow our roll on, like, what we're promising. And... And and sure, like Audi has its sort of first "quote unquote" level three car coming out soon, but even that, like, no one's driven it, no one's tested it, and it's in like their most expensive model ever. Which means that if you look at the pattern of actually how this technology goes down, it means like, like according to Audi's projection, then that means a lot of the cars will have it as some form of package in another decade, uh, like going down all the way down to their 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 sort of cheapest model. I think so. I think a lot of people in technology look for narratives in their community whenever there's not really a a clear picture of how to make money and and let me elaborate on this a little bit more so so when 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 companies go public when 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 there is like a a huge explosion of innovation and and company growth there, there's sort of a sense of like alignment around, yeah, like this is like social media age, right? Or yeah, this is like the age of the mobile phone, and and I think recently as as there's been less IPOs, more acquisitions into larger companies, there there is sort of a sense of like we need to justify 
why we don't make any money as a company, but worth a, a couple hundred million dollars. And and I think that with that the the community picks up on these narratives as, as a means to get excited about something. Um, and it, but we we have there's a long list of things that were similar of excitement and interest that failed miserably. And again, this is not saying that like these ideas aren't going to work or these ideas aren't valuable. Like I firmly believe in the power of AI and in autonomous vehicles and a shared economy. But we need to like sort of put it in perspective that that the history of the world in terms of innovation is less so artificial intelligence and more of augmented intelligence. Right? The future is Star Wars. The future is not Terminator. And and that is from a like firm historical perspective. Right? The, the history is on that on the side of like augmented intelligence, right? Like the the like financial analysts still exist, but they use Excel and they use some some data science now. Uh, driving cars still exist, but now you have the ability to like maybe take your hands off the wheel for a minute and sort of relax for a second, or like you don't have to adjust your your cruise control. And and I think a lot of the arguments that go into that the world is ending Terminator are based upon presuppositions regarding humanity that are not valid and and are not sort of being self-exposed. Like as if humans, the reason why Terminator would happen, for example, like the, the sort of core assumption in, in Terminator, which is you know AI that AI is going to destroy everything, is that humans are not worth anything. Right, that's one. Right, that they're they're fundamentally just like worthless. Two, second presupposition in that is that there's nothing valuable within us other than that it can be reduced to zeros and ones. Right, that like creativity can be programmed, uh, you know, quote unquote morality can be programmed, zeros and ones, even though science doesn't support that. Like something like that. Like that that consciousness is is utterly just zeros and ones, and and then the, the, there's there's no difference between me and and a plant. Right, outside of that, I'm just, I have a, a higher higher cognitive load. And, and I think the third one is is that like the future is almost better without humans, something like that. Like some sort of like weird techno evolutionist uh, perspective. And and I, and I think that what Christianity teaches is that that's not true, right? That, that I mean, that humans are, are way more valuable than zeros and ones. That humans are, are eternal beings. That the, the, the who you're counting with on a day-to-day basis has a soul that will forever live more uh, in, in the afterlife, and that, that every encounter you have is like almost an internal counter with with uh, with with the soul, and and I, so I think the Christian perspective is very different. I, th- I think that we come from a a at least speaking from like a post millennial perspective, you could argue that most of the modern quote unquote innovations from civil rights to to technology has come from people who believed in the bettering of the world, which is more of a post millennials perspective, and I mean science itself, the core people in 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 who who developed the the scientific method um, were all Christians and um, bef- like sort of pre enlightenment Christians from the, the you know like the merchant calculators uh, to Galileo etc. and and you know they they viewed this from perspective of like that that the that the earth is knowable and that God is good and that what we can create with our hands can also be good because of the cultural mandate in Genesis 128. And I, I guess in, in this new conversation regarding AI and autonomous vehicles, just almost that it's completely missing, that people are more valuable than, than what they can like, you know, produce in zeros and one. But, 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 but still, like, I, I think that the, the assumptions that go into it, like leaving aside the, the talking about human condition consumptions that come from a Christian perspective, all this stuff is 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 way 
over accelerating what actually is doable. Like, for example, Watson at IBM. 20 years ago, they said, oh, it was going to identify every form of cancer by the time of, like, 2015. Uh, and would be, like, even though they believed it was going to augment uh, cancer doctors, but back then, that day, that's what they believed. But today, it can't even do the, the basic, I think there's 7 to 12 most common cancers. It can't even identify those. And, like, and, and, and you could argue that, like, this... The Watson thing has been like the greatest marketing, one of the greatest marketing successes uh, for IBM. So it's not like they're not investing a ton of money in it. So, so I think there's a, there's a there there's a assumption that we be able to do things that we can't yet. Uh, there's an over excitement for it um, that is sort of used to like you know justify valuations, make people excited about the future. Uh, but but then there's this this other philosophical worldview issue that goes into people's argumentations about what the future will look like that is very dystopian, you know, quote unquote Blade Runner-ish uh, that I just don't have. Like, I, I I don't think that that is the arc of the history of the world. I, th- I see the arc of the history of the world being focused towards progress, equality, uh, and, and, and like a, a better a better environment for people to live in. Um, uh, one of the, one of the things I always say, uh, that, that when, when it comes to things around technology innovation is like, you know, mother earth doesn't need any more skills or, or tools to kill us. Right. Like uh, the, like she's very good at it. Right. She has lots of diseases and natural disasters. Like she doesn't need any more help. Right. Like the, so the arc of the arc of creation, the arc of the human society is protecting us more and more from nature and controlling more and more of what nature is so that more humans can flourish. Like that is the arc of, of the world. That's world history. And, and I, and I only see like amazing things in the future with robots and AI and deep learning and the share economy creating like new institutions. Uh, I think I, I, I think that the arc of the world is, is going to continue towards freedom in uh, liberty and prosperity. Fantastic stuff there, Aaron. That is that is really fascinating. I mean, you're you're an expert in this area, and your your insights are are just incredibly valuable. And I, I agree with you. I, I think that um, the the overall trajectory of human history is moving in that direction. And certainly with uh, with Christ on the throne, uh, we we have a. a a great hope to look forward to. So that's all the time we have today on this episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can do so by writing podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, and if you'd like to support our work, you can do that at libertarianchristians.com slash donate. Thanks for listening in, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Libertarian Christian Podcast.